Okay, so it's early on a Saturday morning. I woke up late, I'm tired, and we almost skipped recording today, but we're not going to because we got some ish to say. So for this episode of the Fix Your Plate podcast on the Eat, Drink, and Dine Network, we don't have a specific topic. Um, we're going to do a series of shout outs and call outs. I think we should do positives and negatives one after the other because there's so much going on, not only in the world, but in our lives and in food that I think is really, really, really important to cover. So KJ, say, say hello to the folks. Hello, folks. This is KJ Kearney. You can find me at Black Food Fridays on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And I want to start today's episode off by giving a shout out to Fawn Weaver. Why am I shouting out Fawn Weaver? Well, number one, Fawn Weaver is spectacular. I got to meet her. I was a fan before I got to meet her a couple weeks ago. Um, but Uncle Nearest is putting up $50 million to help other Black people who want to start or who have liquor companies or spirits brands to expand their brands, to grow their brands. She's putting her money where her mouth is. She doesn't want to be you know, she's told me this when I've interviewed her and I, when I went to the facility, she doesn't want to be the only one, right? She doesn't want to be the one black liquor company that's out here killing the game. She wants to help other people become just like them. I mean, no one could be just like them, but, you know, have a level of success that they've been able to reach. So that's my first shout out is Fawn Weaver and the whole team at Uncle Nearest for putting up $50 million to help other Black people reach even a modicum of the success that they've had. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a testament to their awareness that they don't want to be and can't be the only one, right? This this feeling that I know a lot of, of successful Black folks have have mentioned that like it's lonely sometimes and why does it have to be that way? It shouldn't be that way. There should be space for all of us. So let's make it happen. I love that. That is a great way to start. I will go really local with my shout out. I would say that I really want, <laughs> I want to shout out the local DC, Maryland and Virginia restaurant folks and food folks that are really pushing back against customer behavior at the moment. And this can be such a delicate balance, right? Because the customer's always right, has long defined the service industry in the United States, but we're in a moment where it's not the end of the pandemic, right? It's not over yet. We have not <laughs> reached a place where we can say that it's safe and it's over, but we're back to indoor dining in DC. Um, we have new mask guidance, which I think allows some people to exploit the fact that they just don't want to wear a mask, even if they're not vaccinated. We're in a moment where the food industry has really struggled. And I think it would be easier to just go back to business as usual. It would be easier to just be like, all right, the customer's always right. We're not going to argue. We're just going to try to get our staff, you know, staff back up. And we're not going to think about changing the way we do things. We're not going to think about changing the pay structure. We're not going to think about really excavating this concept of the customer is always right and the tipping structure, which are really rooted in slavery and inequality, right? We're not, <laughs> we're not going to think about those things. I think that would be the easier path. And I understand why some people take that path. But I have seen um, in recent weeks, food folks from across the spectrum being like, pause. Um, we need to talk about customers' bad behavior. We need to talk about the fact that not only does my staff not feel safe, they feel disrespected. And um, people are not tipping in accordance with 
how difficult it is to be in the service sector right now. And so we're going to talk about changing the tipping structure because we can't have people coming to work and you know, not knowing what they're going to make. All of these conversations, which I think are super important, are happening. So shout out to everyone that's not taking the easy route. I know that sometimes we all want to, I want to, sometimes I do, but in this case, I think it's really necessary to make a better service industry. So that brings up something interesting. I read an article a couple of days ago and I don't remember the restaurant, so I can't give them a shout out, but I want to shout out the practice. So this restaurant explained that they are going to be adding like 22% to every ticket from for the foreseeable future. And the reason they're doing that is because they want to provide, you know, PPP or PPE protective equipment for their staff. They want their staff to be able to make a livable wage or as close to livable as they can. They don't want their staff to have to rely on the kindness of strangers, so to speak. Because, you know, I might have a bad day and be like, well, because I'm having a bad day, I'm not going to tip you or, you know, I'm going I'm to hold something against you. So I'm going to give you 8% or something just to be petty. And so this restaurant put it out there that, look, if you come, your stuff is going to be 22% more expensive, which sounds ridiculous until you break it down. If it's like, you know, you're talking about a $10 meal or you know, a $5 drink and you add in 22%, that's not really ridiculous at all. And then they said, if you choose to tip after that, cool. But they're taking it out of our hands and they're like, we're just gonna add this 22%. So if you come here, yes, the price is higher. Yes, you probably can get it cheaper for somewhere else, but those people are probably not paying their employees uh, a livable wage and providing them with the equipment they need to do their job. And yeah, I don't know who that restaurant is. And I want to say it was in the DC area, to be honest with you. There's so many in the DC area that have service charges now, and we could talk about service charges. Let's do the service charge talk for a minute. So there's been lots of experiments in the restaurant industry doing away with tipping. And there's been a lot of very prominent restaurateurs who have tried and then walked it back. And what we've seen historically in many cases is that if they raise the menu prices, the individual items on the menu, so say your, your bagel sandwich goes from $6.50 to $8.50 or even $7.50, customers really balk. We get upset and then we start writing Yelp reviews and going somewhere else. And so the service charge, because it allows you to see the cost of the food and then the service charge is added afterwards, seems to be more palatable to customers, which is why in many restaurateurs are going that route. They'll you know, state laws differ and service charges can be uh, not possible or just really difficult depending on where you are. So that's why we're seeing so many service charges, uh, not because they're trying to be sneaky. I know some people think that I've seen that commentary on Twitter that like restaurateurs are trying to be sneaky with this service charge. Why don't they just raise the menu prices? And I will say that likely they're doing that because they have tried or they've watched their friends try to raise the menu prices and then get yeah. slammed for it by customers because mm. we, the customers, sometimes are the problem. <laughs> so there are lots of DC restaurants that are doing the service charge now. I do think it's important for customer education. If you're going to have a service charge to put it on the bottom of the receipt and on your website, what the service charge goes towards explicitly, who splits it, et cetera, et cetera, um, because it makes customers feel uh, more, I guess it just empowered. Makes, yeah, it makes them feel more empowered. And I've asked a few restaurateurs here who have service charges like that, and it goes towards fair wages and providing benefits for their staff. And they say that it's rare, 
that a customer asks to have the service charge removed. They will remove it if you ask, but don't be that person, frankly. Right, and, right. Yeah, there's there was a kerfuffle <laughs> on social media with a prominent chef and <laughs> restaurateur who a customer had the service charge taken off and then wrote a nasty comment on the check um, and then didn't leave a tip at all. So stiff their server. And the chef posted wow. it online, at least posted the back of the note that they had written. And I do think that there maybe is a little bit of a lack of customer education. And some people assume that the service charge is just restaurants trying to scam you. Yeah. And I will say that overwhelmingly it's people who want to pay their employees better, who want to try to do better by their staff, but they know if they raise menu prices, we are all going to complain because we're so used to food being cheap because of exploitation at every single step in the supply chain, not yeah. just the servers, like the farm workers, the transportation workers, you know, people in meatpacking plants, all of it. And so how do we fix that? We have to get accustomed to higher prices for food. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I want to pivot a little bit. My shout out is now going to turn to the sneaker world because I'm a recovering sneaker addict. I got out of the game for a year, for a couple of years now, actually. And I want to give a shout out to Mimi Plange, who is a designer, black woman designer, who did these really dope interpretations of a LeBron 18 low top. And I entered three different raffles to try to hit those sneakers. And the sneakers app I didn't hit on Mimi's own website, I didn't hit. But then I went back and put a different email address and I hit. So I am going to be receiving a pair of the Mimi for LeBron low 18s. And I'm super excited. And this this is something that I don't post on Black Food Fridays because it doesn't really have much to do with food. But sneakers are a huge part of my life, even though I don't buy them nearly as much as I used to. I'm still up on things and I'm really trying to buy uh, more of these collaborations that these black designers are doing with sneaker companies. So, like, I, I don't have any Joe Fresh goods yet, but I want to. There's a whole bunch. I don't want to start naming people because I'm going to forget. And then it'll be like, oh, well, what about such and such? But yes, I'm trying to buy more of these uh, sneakers designed by black designers. And I got the Mimis and I'm super. I, you know what? Look, I calling them the Mimis. I'm not even calling them LeBrons, right? I got them. The I got the Mimis. That's why they're the Mimis. Exactly. So that's my shout out. Shout out to you, Mimi. I don't know if you're ever going to hear this episode, but I, I entered three times and the third time was the charm. Okay, I'm gonna do a call out because I almost called someone out publicly on Twitter yesterday and I walked it back because I realized that I just don't have the energy to argue with people. And mm. if you want to be an asshole, you can be an asshole. But here's my call out. There has been in the past week on food Twitter among food writers, right? And these are writers who distinguish themselves proudly from bloggers. And I get it, whatever. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. There has been this kind of discourse in the community where they have all been making fun of bloggers um, and making fun of them in very sarcastic ways, talking about how, oh, when I tell people I'm a food writer, they just assume I'm a food blogger. Ugh, ugh, how could they assume that? And I know in our pop culture, it's really easy to shit on people who you view as below you. Yeah. But I want to remind people that just because they happen to place some of their writing in a newspaper, that'll make you better than nobody, not better than the person who cleans the bathrooms in the public train stations, and definitely not better than someone who has not been published in a legacy institution. And I will say this, because these are people that I, I like their writing, and I respect their work, and I think they're really smart. But 
I really, really struggle with a, the concept of gatekeeping, because I think it's stupid, but also with this idea that as we advance in our professional careers, the mark of success is being able to place ourselves above other people. Mm. And so it, it started between a couple food writers. And then one of them, I will say, she went back and said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with being called a blogger. It just annoys me that people don't understand my work. And I was like, cool. She realized that this was really disrespectful and also uncalled for because ain't nobody coming for you. You're just making fun of other people. Right, online. Right. But because these are prominent voices in the food space that had this initial conversation, it's carried over now. Days later, I'm seeing other food writers posting their work that's in the, the Washington Post or whatever and making sarcastic commentary about on my food blog today. And then the linking to their article in the post and then like making sassy commentary underneath. But what uh, some of these people don't understand is that their colleagues at the Washington Post, some of them started as food bloggers. Right. So now what you're doing is publicly making jokes about the people you work with, you idiot. And that seems like a great way to make a positive working environment. And maybe I'm like so upset about this because I used to work in a place where the mark of success was being able to put yourself above other people, but Mm. it was such a toxic work environment and it made everyone want to quit. And all the people who wanted to quit, by the way, were the minorities. (laughs) So I see this now and I'm like, do you not realize that the, the person sitting next to you in your office, when you go back to the office, they got their job at the post after honing their skills on their independent food blog. Like, how are they going to feel when now, like, because you have a different pedigree, you've made it clear to the tens of thousands of people that see your work online that you're better than them. Also, and let's just, you know, for any of these food writers who may be listening, let's not forget COVID is where, whether it's over or not, people are starting to get back in these streets. They're traveling. They're they're going to restaurants and people will beat your ass over this, bro. Like, (laughs) People need to people need to realize that what you say on the internet can have real world implications. And you're a food writer, not not to demean what a food writer does, but also the likelihood of your hands being used for weaponry is low. So don't be out here talking crazy on the internet, and one of these food bloggers roll up on you and be like, "Yo, I saw your tweet. Talk that shit now," because it's gonna happen. I also want to say this, right? Food writing has had huge issues that were aired in public in the last year. The reckoning at Bon Appetit, right? There's been all of this work written about why and how food writing remains so white and, and the gatekeeping that has happened in that industry and the faults in that industry. And I will say that I mean, I've struggled myself with when I first started out going from being a diplomat to now being an influencer and blogger. Like I had my own stigmas attached to those words that I needed to work through because this was my new job. And I realized that I liked it and I thought I was doing something meaningful. So I had to unpack all of that mess that I had learned from our society. But just because you happen to become a writer in the way that we view it to be legitimate in our society doesn't mean that the institution you're working for isn't backwards and flawed. And it doesn't mean that you have suddenly managed to remove yourself from all of the mess that is our society. And I just like, I almost, 
literally went for someone on Twitter yesterday and I had to text a friend and she was like, girl, it's not worth it. Like, first of all, this person works for a big organization. Second of all, like, it's just going to come off as you, the whiny black blogger. And yeah. I, all that's true, but like, it's not about me. They're not making fun of me. I don't give a shit if they make fun of me because I don't give right. a shit what these people think. Right. But I just, I don't ever want to become that person who yeah. suddenly thinks that I'm above other people. I like, I don't want that to be something that we strive for. And why is it now something that in the internet discourse we strive for? Why is it I want to be cooler than this person? Or like, even the way we talk about money sometimes, like I want to make more money than this person. And I'm like, I just want all of us to have like health insurance and be fulfilled and be able to pay our bills. Yeah, yeah, I feel you on that. I just, I think what the internet does is it removes the fear of getting punched in the face. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like- That's a fact. Because if I was sitting in a room with these people, they wouldn't be making these jokes about bloggers. No, not one but bit. But also like, not just me, like, okay. Think about the kitchenista. She okay. has changed the way that we think about what what bloggers can do, and she is just a woman with a daughter who cooks in her kitchen, who has gained the respect of trained chefs, legacy media institutions. Like that's one person alone who she used to be an accountant, yeah. and you know just pursuing something she's passionate about and using the internet as a tool, right. And I think maybe part of the reason, and this is maybe it's subconsciously for them, but maybe part of the reason why people who work for legacy media institutions love to shit on independent creators on the internet is because maybe there's a subconscious recognition of the fact that some of these people will eclipse them. Ooh. Some of these people will eclipse them and they didn't Ooh. have to go get a get a degree that costs tens of thousands of dollars. Right. And they don't have to ask their bosses to do the work that they're doing. And they don't have to put up with all the bullshit that they probably put up with at these gatekeeping legacy institutions, maybe there is a sense, a little bit of jealousy because somebody now can get a book deal and mm. never have mm. for, for a paper, never Come have on. a book before. Come on. Or, or, or get deals with like, you know, Stella Artois or Pepsi I mean, or whatever. It's about me. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, it's not about you in per se, but I think what you're saying, there is a modicum of truth there is that when you work for someone, even if I'm the best writer of all time and I'm but I'm writing for the Post and Courier or I'm writing for the Washingtonian, even if Pepsi is like or Nike or anybody is like, yo, I really like this guy. I want to be a part of what he got going on. I got to go tell the editor. Right. Like I, mean, I got to go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of restrictions. Yeah. Work for a legacy institution. And a lot of people work their whole lives to do that. And they they did the freelancer thing, making pennies and like, mm -hmm. you know, scrambling to put together enough to pay rent, et cetera, et cetera. And now you see these people who like literally you probably resent because they just have laptops and phones and they somehow made it. But that is not that is not a reason to like put up walls between us, right? Right. Um, and I don't know. It's just like I I really struggle with this, and I think it happens in all industries, but with this concept that there is like the right way and the wrong way to do it. And I'm like that. I think just encourages students and people who want to get into this industry. It encourages them to have to pick a path and maybe mm. the path that they pick isn't going to be right for them. Maybe the path that they pick involves hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans 
to then enter an industry that's not going to pay them a living wage and they're going to have to cobble together four freelancing jobs to make it work. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. we should talk about why people might choose to opt out or why it might be smart to opt out of the traditional path. Mm-hmm. And I had that choice when I left the State Department. I had the choice to start publishing consistently for food papers, for major, yeah. major food verticals that approached me and wanted me to write for them. And I opted not to after, you know, dabbling with a couple things, not because I didn't want to, but because I couldn't afford to, because Mm. what they pay is not enough for me to make a real living. And so now I'm in a position where I feel like now I am making it about me because I'm like, like people don't understand why someone might not want to make sense per word. Right, <laughs> right, right. Long, long pieces they have to churn out and then fight to get paid, get paid late. Like there's so much about the the freelance writing space that is is difficult. Right. And so like why make fun of people who who opted to go another way who literally may not be able to afford to do it the way that you did it. And that's why I stopped publishing in in outside Uh, publications largely not because I didn't want to or because I thought the work wasn't fulfilling but because I couldn't afford it and I can't I can't afford to with my student loans and with the fact that like my family's great but we don't have we don't have like hidden cash reserves somewhere (laughs) and I'm not comfortable taking on a bunch of credit card debt um, to write for you know a newspaper that that has a name, but like can't pay me on time. Yeah. And so why is it that those writers are now all on the internet making fun of other people? You know, it's, there are reasons why food writing remains so white and a lot of it is gatekeeping, but also a lot of it is just the financial inviability of it. And to be clear, let me just say two things before we leave y'all today. Number one, I am not encouraging people to beat up food writers. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if you pop off on the Internet, especially now that people are getting back in these streets, don't be shocked if somebody rolls up on said writer and is like, talk that tweet now. Right. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And second of all, there are some food bloggers who suck yet still seem to be able to get the the pays, you know, and the the brand partnerships and the trips and Right. Like that part is also true. So there is some there's some truth. There's like reasons why writers, I can see why they would be upset because there are some people. But there are people in every industry who suck, which is why I don't think that's worth talking about, because there are people who now we know had leadership positions at major, you know, major writing institutions that sucked. Um, You know, we know that now. It's just that certain people get to fail and be bad at their jobs publicly and get to continue in their success. And certain Mm. people do not. And a lot of that has to do with class and race, but a lot of it has to do with prestige and what we think of as elite. And if you Mm -hmm. have an elite background, you get to fail multiple times. You get to suck publicly before you can be good, you know, and you don't get to do that as someone who's like a scrappy independent operator, who's probably from a marginalized background. Yeah. Well, you know what? On that note, well, I don't want to end the podcast episode on a I'm call sorry, out. I'm like a 15 minute rant on what That's was okay. our short, like quick, positive episode. This is yeah. still relatively short. So we got we got a couple minutes left. 
So how about this? You end with one more shout out and then I'll do a shout out. We'll, we'll close it out and give the people the rest of their day. Okay. So for my shout out, I want to shout out a service that I found last night called Sonder Mind. And if you have, even if you have insurance, finding a provider that is accepting new patients and takes your insurance for any sort of medical thing is a hot mess. It is a hot mess. I hate it. Every time I have to find a new provider, I'm like on my insurance provider's website and I can click all the links and like half of them will be broken. Half of these people won't be accepting new patients, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have new insurance and I want to go back to therapy. I think everyone should go to therapy and it would help all of us. But so now I have to find a new therapist that takes my insurance because therapy is expensive. And so shout out to Sonder Mind. I was super frustrated on my insurance website. I couldn't find a provider that was accepting new patients. And I also am interested in telehealth appointments, even though the world is opening back up and I'm out and about more. As a freelancer, my schedule is super like chaotic. <laughs> it's very chaotic. And I work odd hours. So, you know, we're recording this on a Saturday morning. Um, so I think tele-appointments would be better. So Sondermind was amazing. You fill out a little survey that's quick. You can say, you know, I want a therapist that also aligns with my identity. And they, they, there's a box like, are there certain racial, um, gender, et cetera, preferences that are important to you? Please let us know. And so I literally put, I would like to find someone who is black or brown. <laughs> and you upload your insurance information. It'll tell you an estimate of how much it's going to cost up front. And then they'll match you with a provider that's in network that offers the kinds of appointments that you want, whether they're in person or virtual or a combination of both. This whole thing took maybe five, six minutes. And when I tell you, I have never in my life been able to find a provider that quickly. It was beautiful. They, they do, based on your preferences, send you back um, suggested providers within a couple days or within 24 to 48 hours. But this is not an ad, just if you're looking for therapy, Sondermind is great. And I know that especially now there's a lot of therapy apps, which I've never tried, but depending on your insurance, they may not cover that. And so it just, it's such a difficult space to navigate. So shout out to Sondermind and any service or person trying to make that space a little bit easier to navigate. That was really, really good. And I'm not going to lie. I had no clue you were going to say that. People hit me up sometimes and it'd be like, oh, I know you and Anella plan what you guys are going to talk about. And yeah, sometimes we do plan it, but then sometimes either one of us will say something very spur of the moment that catches the other person off guard. That was something that caught me off guard. But I just want to echo therapy, especially in the black community. It's still looked at as a stigmatized thing. Uh, it's admitting you're crazy or, you know, you got them people in your business or whatever the case may be. So I want to help normalize. So anyone who's listening, who may be black, who may be going through some things, just know that there's nothing wrong with you if you decide to seek out therapy or do meditation or, you know, do anything other than take it to the Lord in prayer, right? Like that's the go-to default answer for most black people. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there are other ways in addition to that, if you so choose to get your mind right. So thank you, Anella, for bringing that up. I mean, I'm all about prayer, but yeah. I pray. And then I also believe in trying to do all of the other things in my power to make my yeah. life better. Right. I think that that faith and I'm, I'm not very religious. I don't ascribe to a particular religion, but I am extremely spiritual. And like, I do think that 
action paired with faith can be very powerful. Um, And I will say not just for the black community, but also men in general, I think are less likely to seek therapy and that that definitely should change. There, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a neutral party to talk to about what's going on with yourself and that someone that's not judgmental, someone whose literal job it is to just be a supportive figure. It, It can also help your relationships a lot. I'll say that my relationships over the years have gotten much better as I've gone to therapy because therapy offers a space for me to process all the things without dumping on my partner. Mm, Fair enough. I want to give a shout out. I'm going to do a random shout out like you did. My last shout out for the episode. I want to shout out the fact that I'm losing weight and therefore now I'm buying jewelry because I have a neck now. And I'm during this recording, I'm wearing two necklaces because why not? And (laughs) And they're both from black designers. So the the shorter one is from Johnny Nelson. He's in New York City. I appreciate that. He has a four-finger ring. He has a couple of them that I'm I'm going to buy. It's like 500 bucks. I ain't made enough podcast money yet to go ahead and trick on that. But Johnny Nelson in New York City. And then the bigger one, the medallion, is from Omi Woods, O-M-I Woods. So shout out to Johnny Nelson, shout out to Omi Woods. And listen, in the comments, please let me know if there's some other black jewelry designers that I need to be up on. As you know, I'm up on the sneaker joints and now I want to do jewelry. I want to be known as the food guy that wears like eight rings when he's taking pictures. So like, you don't even need to see my face. You can just see my hand dipping a burrito taco into sauce and you'd be like, oh, that's KJ. Because he got like eight rings on. I'm trying to be that guy. You know what I'm saying? So thank you to all these designers that have helped me live my food fantasies in real life. And with that being said, we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Fix Your Plate podcast. That was Anella Malik of Feed the Malik. You can find her at Feed the Malik on all platforms. I'm KJ Kearney of Black Food Fridays at Black Food Fridays. Share this episode and any previous episodes that you like with your friends and family. Leave a comment and a rating, the whole nine. And until next time, peace. Peace.